I didn't hear anything behind those masks. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all got to scream. Good. All right. Well, good. Hey, we're past phase two. That's worth some kind of cheering, right? I mean, we're not really that much different, but at least it's not phase two. I mean, you know, it's like, that's good news. We're past phase two. But uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, as you know, if you've been with us for a while. And Luke is taking very careful records. He's done very careful uh, investigative journalism, if you will, to help us understand who exactly Jesus is, what exactly his life means, and, and how did we get this, this Christian teaching that we have. Because he said, I want you to be confident that the teaching that has been passed down to you is true, that you can have confidence in it. So, so how did we get this teaching, and how do we know it's true? Well, he's carrying us along the way, saying that I investigated it, and here's what happened. And he's been presenting Jesus very carefully. And what you see in, in these chapters is that he is the, presenting him as the Son of God. Over and over, he's been presenting these texts that demonstrate that Jesus is the, the Son of God. I'm just going to review a few. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 35, he, talked about, he, he told about what Gabriel proclaimed in advance before the child would be born. And Gabriel said, he'll be called holy, the Son of God. And then in chapter 2 last week, everyone was declaring the, the baby, the Lord, the, the salvation has come. Over and over, he was clearly being presented as the Son of God. Uh, and then today in chapter 3, in verse 22, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So we have another testimony of God himself saying, this is my son who's being baptized. And then in our end of chapter 3, you have a genealogy. And it's a very unusual genealogy because the very last thing, the very last phrase of the genealogy, the son of, the son of, the son of, son of, Jesus is referred to as, in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so, and then if we keep reading, and next week in chapter 4, we have the temptation narratives. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And what does the devil say at the very beginning of Jesus' temptation? He says in chapter 4, verse 3, or Luke tells us, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then do these things. Clearly, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, Luke is presenting Jesus as the Son of God. And we can't miss that in, in the context. But we're going to focus in on a particular passage of verses 1 through 20 here. We're going to focus in on those verses because in those verses, John is going to be the center of attention. John the Baptist. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at John the Baptist and his role in relation to Jesus as the witness to Jesus. And so we're going to pick up where we left off. If you remember where we left with John, John the Baptist was in verse, chapter 1, verse 80. And it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John has been born. He's been off in the wilderness. He's kind of presented in, in scriptures as this kind of crazy guy out in the wilderness Eating, eating weird things and wearing weird clothing. He's just this strange guy. But he's been out in the wilderness. 
getting old, growing and maturing in the spirit of the Lord until it was time for his public appearance. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and Luke says, okay, it's time for his public appearance. And so look at, first of all, we're going to look at John's calling. This is John's calling to be the witness. It's time to go. In chapter 3, verse 1, in Luke, as he does, he records very specific time and date and references so that we can investigate it. And the people who were reading the original audience could go and talk and, and validate these claims. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Abilene, I can pronounce that one. That sounds like something around here. On Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, here's a key phrase. Here's the main verb of this paragraph. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, again, we see Luke is being very careful to make these notes historical markers so that you can go, where exactly was this? Who were these people? And when was this happening? And scholars say this is probably around AD 27 and 28. They, they use Roman calendar and they figure out all these different people and these reigns and they say, okay, this is about AD 27 and 28. And so what this should do to you as a reader is immediately say, this is not fiction. This is not fable. This stuff really took place. These are real people, real events. This stuff really took place, and these are some crazy claims, as we saw last week, that we've got to deal with. But what we also notice is all these leaders that he mentioned, they're very antagonistic to the gospel. They all show up later in the scene against Jesus, persecuting the gospel, persecuting the church. They're Roman rulers. They're priests that were Jewish priests, but they were, they were against this whole new movement of, of Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so it's a very antagonistic culture, a very antagonistic crowd. And so that sets the tone for when John is called to be a witness, it's in a very a culture that's very similar to ours, I think. And I think it's growing more antagonistic to the church and to, to the gospel. More and more, we see our culture does not like the message that we have and the, and the, the people that we represent. And so that's what John is called into as well. And then when we get to the main verb, his calling, the word of God came to John. This is, this is a, a typical Old Testament prophet's calling. The style of the language is, is just like the Old Testament prophets were called. And so what John is doing is what we're learning is, I mean, what Luke is doing is showing us John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's unique in his role that, that as all the previous Old Testament prophets were called, they were called to be God's mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. Oftentimes we think of prophets as people who, uh, for, who foresaw the future and predicted the future. And some of their role was that. But mostly what they did was they just called the people to God's word that had been revealed and called people back to obedience. And so just like that, John is saying, I mean, Luke is presenting John as the last Old Testament prophet after hundreds of years of silence of no more prophets coming from God. God breaks his silence with John the Baptist, and we see that John is, is acting like a prophet. He is the mouthpiece of God. 
Now, when we say, okay, well, how does this relate to us? We understand that we are all called by the Word of God to be the mouthpiece of God if we are believers. If you claim to have faith in Christ, if you claim to have received the Word of God, the gospel Word of God, if, you, if, you, uh, be a, if you're a follower of Christ, then we saw in 1 Corinthians that Paul said we are all ambassadors of Christ. And we saw in 1 Corinthians that we need to understand that God saved you in order to make you his ambassador in that particular sphere of influence. You have people that you come in contact with and that you know better than anyone else on the planet knows. Your children, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, your, your, the people you work out with, the people you do your hobbies with. No one else knows them like you do. And God saved you, and he planted you in their midst, among those people, in that context. And he has called you, like John has been called, he's called you to be his representative, to be his mouthpiece, to, to be his representative of this is what it means to follow Christ. And so we need to all have that same understanding about our lives. In fact, if you, when we go on through Luke, we're going to see in chapter 24, Jesus said himself, he said, this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day raised from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem... You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so in that text, Jesus is saying to those who have witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection, who have become followers of Jesus, he says, you are now, having participated in the salvation, you are now my witnesses. And he says, this gospel message, this good news must be, it will be proclaimed from Jerusalem to all nations. And it's going to happen through those of you who I have allowed to be witnesses, who have experienced this, who have seen this. And he says and to them, he said, now wait until the Spirit of God comes upon you because he will be your power. He will be your energizing power that enables you to fulfill this mission. And so this is the same message to all of us. If you have participated in the gospel, his death, burial, resurrection, if you are saved, if you are truly a Christian, then you have received, like John, the word of God has come to you and said, you are my witness. The only question is, what will you do about that? Will you embrace that role or will you kind of shirk it as that's not really what I want to do? If you're a follower of Christ, you've been called, and the context is very similar. It's antagonistic, like John. And God is calling you to start in your Jerusalem and be a witness all the way to the nations. And so what is your Jerusalem? Your Jerusalem, for them, was the closest city. It's where they were. And so you should, should say, okay, what is my Jerusalem? Who are the people that are in my life now? So many times we think we've got to go out to some strange people, which is part of going to the nations. 
You're also called to, to be a part of that, to pray for the nations, to, to give so that people can go to the nations and even ask God, do you want me to go on mission trip to the nations? But everyone is called to start right where you are, in your Jerusalem. Who are your friends? Who are the people that you uniquely know like no one else knows? Your children, your family, your extended family, your neighbors literally next door, your co-workers. God has called you to be a witness to them. And the question is, how will we respond? Well, let's look how John responds. Let's look at John's obedience in verse 3 through 6. It says, and he went. The word of God came to him, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall be shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So God's word came to John, and the very next thing it says is, and he went. John was ready. He was prepared. It said in 180, in the wilderness, he was preparing, he was growing, he was maturing. And when his call came, he went. But notice what it said he went. He went into all the region around the Jordan. He went all around. I think a lot of times I thought about John the Baptist as this guy who just kind of hung out in the wilderness and waited for people to come by and come see him. Or he hung out the river ready to baptize because we see later that it says that many were coming to him to baptize. But I've kind of missed this verse that John, when his calling came, he went out into all the region. He was working it. He wasn't just sitting saying, well, let me just sit here and wait for a divine appointment. He proactively sought out people. Now, he had a unique role as a prophet. He was kind of more like the itinerant preacher, a traveling evangelist. He went around and he preached. But he noticed that he went out, he proactively went out all around looking for the opportunity to proclaim. And that's what it says. Luke, Luke says that John was proclaiming. And that Greek word means to herald, to announce. And that's what you are just all throughout these texts. We've been seeing that the gospel is being heralded or announced or proclaimed. I don't know what you think of, but when you think about being called to, to share the gospel with others, what comes to mind? What do you picture? Do you picture uh, someone that's kind of this, kind of a slick uh, let me make sure all the words are just right. Let me get a canned presentation that I've memorized. And, and let me just be prepared that if they say this, I'm going to say this. And if they say that, or I've got to really twist their arm to make them pray this prayer. If that's what you view it as, I think we need to adjust our thinking a little bit about what it's like. It's more about having become so convinced of this good news that you proclaim it, you herald it, you share it as the natural overflow of grasping this good news. That if someone has really impacted your life for the better, then you naturally want to tell people about this. You know, let me tell you what this person did for me. 
Anytime you have the opportunity. That's what, that's what this is. This is the heralding, a proclaiming of the good news that God has done for us in Christ. But look in particular what, what we see from Isaiah's prophecy. Luke points out that John's obedience to proclaim is fulfillment of prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, many, many hundreds years before. And, and what this, if you go back and read Isaiah's prophecy and then look at the context of what was going on when he made this prophecy, it's, it's an encouraging word to God's people who were exiled. They were exiled out of the promised land because of their disobedience. And God, in his graciousness and his mercy, sent Isaiah to say this to them. Now, who are them? They are supposed to be God's people, but they have rebelled. They have disobeyed. They're out in the wilderness, which is a, a picture of not being in God's good will, not enjoying God's good blessings because they're out in the wilderness because they've made bad choices. They've sinned and they've rebelled. And what does God do when they're out in the wilderness? He doesn't, he doesn't thumb his nose at them. He sends Isaiah to say this to them, which are these, these words that, that, he, that we quote here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley, listen to what he's talking about. Every valley shall be filled up. Okay, so we got this filling up of, of holes and valleys. And every mountain shall be made low, shall be cleared out. So fill the holes, clear the mountains, knock out the trees, and every crooked way shall be made straight. And then all the rough places, smooth them out. That's why. So that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So do you see the image that Isaiah is, is creating here? He's building a road. He's building I-20 through the trees, through all the pine trees, and he's, he's making the path clear. He's on a bulldozer, and he's removing every obstacle, every, every hole. He's filling it up with dirt, every bumpy place. He's smoothing it out. Every mountain in Shreveport, every pine tree in Shreveport is being cleared out, and he's making the path smooth and straight back to God. To a people who are out in the wilderness because of their rebellion, he sends Isaiah and says, I'm going to make the path smooth and clear and easy for you to repent and come back to the Lord. What a gracious God. And that's what Isaiah is saying, that John is fulfilling that, because that prophecy is of John who would proclaim to a people to prepare the way for Jesus. To come to Jesus. Let me make it smooth for you to come to Jesus. That's how I hope that you think about your role. If you have been saved, then you have been called to make the way smooth and clear and easy for people to come to know Jesus. So your building of roads, if each one of us thinks about all of us being a part of doing this for the Norris Ferry community, we're like a cobblestone road where all of us together, side by side, little stones after one another, are a pathway making it clear this is how you go to Jesus. Come know Jesus. Let me knock down obstacles for you. But 
in this idea of building roads, it's really more about building relationships. Building relationships with people. All people, all flesh. He says so that all flesh can know about the salvation of God. We've got to proactively seek out people to build relationships with them and to live in such a way that it removes obstacles and to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has meant in our life. That's very simply what we're called to do. That's what we are to do is to build relationships and make the path straight, make the path clear, make the path smooth, knock out obstacles, fill in holes, and make it clear for how to come to know Jesus as Savior. And like John, the only question is, will you do it? You've been called. If you've experienced the salvation of the Lord, you've been called. You have the message. You know what to say. You know what your role is, and it's just a question of obedience. John was called, and he went. You've been called. Will you go? But you may be wondering, well, what do I say if I go? Well, let's look at John's message in 7 through 14. Here's what John's message was. And we can pull from this some things that we need to make sure that we're including in our message. He said in verse 7, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! That's what you say to all your friends. You brood of vipers! No, he has a definite unique personality. You're not called to imitate him. You're called to to, uh, be yourself. But listen to what he said. You brood of snakes, vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So let's stop there. First, we see John's message included the presumption of judgment. John didn't say, hey, Jesus is awesome. You need to trust in Jesus because he's going to give you the life you've always wanted to live. That's not the gospel message is, hey, you, got, you want a better life? Trust Jesus. It's not about man-centeredness. It's not about, hey, Jesus will give you everything you always dreamed of, your best life now if you just follow Jesus. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message begins with the presumption of guilt and condemnation. Now, when you say, I was saved, what were you saved from? Have you ever thought about that? What were you saved from? You may not present it exactly this way to them, but you need to think about it. I was saved. God saved me from God's wrath. I was saved from the wrath of God that I deserve because of my sin and rebellion against God. I was exiled in the wilderness because of my sin and rebellion, but God graciously made the way easy, made the way clear, the path of salvation for me through Jesus. And so our message needs to conclude, I mean, needs to include an aspect of we are under the wrath of God because of our sin, and it's right, and we deserve it, because we have rebelled actively, we are rebelling against God. And so when we explain the gospel to them, we're simply explaining gospel means good news. So what is the good news? Well, the good news is that God came to us in our exile, and you can use whatever language you want to use, God came in our exile, God came in our sin and rebellion, and he is merciful and gracious to offer forgiveness through Jesus. 
And when I trust forgiveness, he cleanses me, he forgives me, he declares me righteous, and I'm no longer under his wrath. For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is good news. And I praise God for that. In fact, God looks at me as righteous and holy because he's given me credit for Jesus' righteousness and holiness. Do you see this message that you have is really good news? This is what you have to offer people. That God will totally change you and declare you holy because of Jesus' holiness. That's the gospel. He sent Jesus to take the wrath that we deserve. That's why he died on the cross. But notice how John frames the desired response for them. So you've presented the gospel. What do, you, what do you want for them? What does this response look like? Look what he says in verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able to, with, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham... Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, you see the context of wrath and judgment. And what he calls for is repentance. Repentance. He says, hey, you need to repent. He's, these are coming to be baptized, which baptism is what's done after salvation to proclaim I've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to these Jews that are coming up, he says, what are you doing? You haven't repented? This is no easy, cheap grace message. And see, that's what he's, he's contradicting. Some people call it cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea where people say, hey, it's all free. All I got to do is pray this prayer and I'm good. And John says, no, you need to bear fruit, the fruit of repentance. I need to see genuine evidence of repentance. Yeah, grace is free to you, but it demands everything from you. God paid the price that you could have forgiveness, and then he fills you with his spirit, which transforms you into someone who lives for Jesus. And so you should see repentance is a turning, and it's not something in addition to faith. It's the other side of the coin. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. If you truly have faith in this gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will repent. You will turn away from sin. You'll turn away from worshiping self. You'll turn away from whole, any other false gods. And you'll turn to trust Christ only. And so faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. And so in Luke verse 3, Luke said he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance... For the forgiveness of sins. There's no room for cheap grace. We don't just say, hey, it's, if you just pray this prayer, then you're good to go. That's not your goal, just to, just to try to get them to pray some prayer like it's a magical wand. You want them to repent of their sin, see that they are under the wrath of God because they rightly deserve it because of sin. And you want them to see, but there's good news. God, in his mercy, will give you forgiveness. He will grant you his forgiveness. It's a gift of grace that requires you turning to him. It's a transition of complete shifting of your loyalties to God, to Christ. And that shows up in the way you live. And then verse 10 through 14, he gives some illustrations of what repentance looks like. He says, and the crowds asked him, well, then what should we do? And he talks about repentance. He says, and he answered them, well, whoever has two tunics should share 
with him who has none. Whoever has food should share with those who don't have food. And then he says, hey, you tax collectors. The tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and we, what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. And so he gives several illustrations that someone who has grasped Christ, been filled with the Spirit, who has grasped the mercy of God and the grace of God, they themselves become merciful and gracious. And those who have become merciful and gracious to share with those who do not have. Those who have power and authority, like the tax collectors who would, who would make more profit the more that they were able to collect taxes, they weren't bound to a certain little level number. They could get as much as they want with their authority, and the more people made off of that. It was extortion. It was an abuse of power. He says, stop. You can't do that anymore. That's not what Jesus did with his power and authority. He served. And to the, to the soldiers who could extort money because of their authority and their, their rule and their power as soldiers, he says, stop. Stop extorting money. Be content with what you have. Use your authority to serve. That's what God did for you. And if you've experienced him, that's what you'll start doing with others. The grace and mercy of God will start to flow through you to others. He says, that's what, I, that's what God demands of you. If you want to come be baptized and proclaim publicly that you are a follower of Christ, then I want to see the evidence of it in your life. This is what we require before baptism. This is why you see us not baptizing many little kids. It's not that we don't, it's not that we're sitting there telling parents, oh, they're not a believer yet. We're just saying the longer we wait, the more we're able to help you discern that they are evidencing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. I'm seeing that life is consistent with their proclamation that they've trusted Christ. And the longer that we go, the more we're able to come alongside you as parents and, and say, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're ready. And then when they're, and there's no magic number, there's no age of accountability, but having walked that with my kids, having looked at other historically 12, 13 years old, they, they're cognitively, there's something in them that, are, that they're to the place where they're able to start really expressing and, and communicating with you. And it gets a little easier to figure it out. And so we say, okay, we see the evidence of repentance in your life. And so let's baptize you and proclaim together that you have decided to follow Christ, that you've been saved. And so that's what Paul is saying. That's what, not Paul, not John, Luke. That's what Luke is saying that he's looking for. He wants us to look for genuine salvation will be evidenced by a changed life. Look at verses 15 through 17. We've seen John's calling, John's obedience, John's message. And now we're going to look at John's perspective. This is John's perspective as the, the Baptist, the one, the, this, this key prophet 315, it says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing 
floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Imagine the temptation and to pride that John had at this point. They're all starting to think that he is the Messiah. God's hand is on him. God's blessing his ministry. People are coming from all around the regions to be baptized. And he is proclaiming the word of God. And they say, they start treating him like the Messiah. How many preachers have fallen because of this temptation? In their pride, the people exalt them and they say, yeah, bring it on. And that's what we see John does not do. Look at his humility. He responds with great humility, exalting Jesus and saying, I'm nothing. It's not about me. Look at Jesus. And he continues to uphold Jesus as the one, this, the message is all about Jesus. You see, that's the problem we make when we think about going out and sharing the gospel. We think it's all about us. And we need to understand it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And when we understand it's about Jesus, we're free to not compromise the message. Notice John continues to drive home that hard message is, hey, the winnowing, the fork is there, the separating from the wheat and chaff is there, and the chaff, which are unbelievers that are on the floor, the Lord's going to burn those. There's judgment coming, talking about the future day of judgment. You see, if you're attached to the opinion of others about you and you like to be built up, you like to be uh, exalted, you're not going to share the hard part of that message because you don't want people to feel uncomfortable. I struggle with that. I like to please people. I don't like to make people feel uncomfortable. But we need to know it's not about us. God's called us to represent him and to proclaim his gospel, and we need to do it faithfully, we need to do it lovingly. And finally, we look at John's results. Look at verse 18 and 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them, that he locked them up in prison. Well, that was an epic fail, wasn't it? John was an epic failure. Isn't that what you would think? Isn't that what I would think? If I was proclaiming the gospel and I found myself thrown into jail, I'd be like, well, what did I do wrong, God? You throwing me in jail? What did I do wrong? Something, I must have done something wrong. Not at all. That's not at all what John did wrong. It wasn't that John did wrong. John did everything right. Success is defined by faithfulness, not the results. You can't worry about the results. You need to go and proclaim the good news and share the good news and make the path straight. But if it ends up getting you thrown into prison, that's not your your concern as far as whether you were successful or not. You were successful if you were faithful. You can't control the results. Not only was he thrown in prison, but he was martyred. His head was cut off for doing everything right. He obeyed God, and it cost him dearly. We can't control the results or the response. All we can do is be obedient. And like John, it says, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Will you do that? You're not called to control the results. You're called to herald it. And you're called to start in your Jerusalem. God has entrusted those children to you. God has entrusted those parents to you. God has entrusted those co-workers to you. 
God has entrusted those friends and those neighbors to you. And that's where you are. You've been called to herald the message to them. So I want to invite you to to just close your eyes and just bow your heads. And I want you to just go into a time of just meditation with the Lord. And as you do, I want to invite you to think about your Jerusalem. Try hard to focus on some friends, on family, on neighbors. Think about their names. Think about your coworkers. Who has God given you favor with? Who has God put you into daily or regular contact with? What are their names? Think about their names in your mind right now. And now just pray to the Lord. Lord, would you help me to be faithful with this good news that you've entrusted to me? God, would you help me build a relationship with them? in order to make the path to them, to Jesus, more clear. Just spend some time now praying, God, God, would you please help me? I know I've been called, but for some reason, I just resist obeying. So spend some time, just a few moments, asking God right now to help you build relationships, to build roads to Jesus.